Well, it really is great to be, to be back with you all. Uh, we, we missed almost all of you, you know, in the last three months. I'm kidding. I'll leave it at that. Um, we missed all of you. Um, that's not an understatement. Um, I, I thought instead of a sermon, maybe I'd just spend the next like, couple hours sharing you all the fun things that we did. Nobody's interested in that. Um, but we had, a really, we had a really interesting time. And the Lord really worked uh, in our hearts, just having some uninterrupted time, uh, just to, to kind of regather, you know, uh, ourselves, uh, spend a little time on each other, um, going before the Lord, um, getting some good counseling in all kinds of different various ways and places. And uh, the Lord really, really moved in our hearts, and um, we're just super grateful for the time. So I want, uh, want to thank the elders for preaching and just the hard work that they, they put into uh, having to come up here and prepare sermons every week. Uh, preaching is it's time-consuming, and so for them to add that on top of the things they already do, super grateful for those guys, and uh, glad to be back doing it. So um, with that said, go ahead, grab your Bibles, turn to Gospel of John. We're going to be going through chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, if you haven't already turned there. I should probably give you an overview over the last, uh, you know, three weeks, three months of the Gospel of John, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just picking right back up uh, because that would have been way too much work for me coming back into all of this. Um, but chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, this is what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we're going to stop right there for today. This is the word of the Lord. You know, sometimes we will use the phrase, uh, something feels off. Have you ever used that phrase? Man, it's just something feels wrong, something feels off. We, we use that when we're trying to describe different moments uh, in our life. And we, and we use that phrase because uh, sometimes it, it's hard to articulate exactly what is wrong. We just know that something is. We know that something feels off. And I'm assuming this is what it felt like as we're reading these verses for Jesus' disciples here in John. Because as we've seen, as they've kind of entered into the upper room, as they've had what's called this Last Supper, this Passover feast with Jesus, man, they are just on the edge of a bunch of things getting ready to change. And they can feel it. It's, it's palpable, right? They, they can sense it. Everything is about to change. Something feels off as they eat this Passover meal with Jesus. Jesus has washed their feet. Uh, he'd never done that before. So that was interesting. That was different. That was not something that they were expecting. Uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus. And Peter declares that he's ready to die for Jesus if need be. I mean, if I was a disciple, I, I would just want to know what the heck, like what's going on? I would like some direction. And you know what? That's normal. That would be a normal thing for the disciples to be sitting there 
within this particular atmosphere that feels a little off, that feels different, that feels like something's about to change, it would be normal for them to say, hey, Jesus, just tell us what's going on, right? They want direction. We all want direction. Like Thomas said that we just read in verse 5. What did he say? He said, Lord, how do we know where you're going? Where are you going? Tell us. Tell us something that we're missing, right? What's so interesting and what we're going to look at today is that Jesus gives the disciples direction by getting them back to their destination. Like the way Jesus gives direction is just so different than the way we might give direction. And it's also different in the sense that it might not even be what we really want. As we think of the ways that we want direction that we feel like are going to be most helpful for us. Of all the things he could have shared with his disciples at this, just this really critical but confusing moment, he does this thing where he reassures them in ways that a lot of us might have considered actually unhelpful and certainly not tangible enough. But what we'll see is that it's this very kind of reassurance that helps us take stock of the things that we look to in our lives to get reassurance. So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. And it's to answer this question to the best of our ability, which is how does Jesus assure his disciples in this critical and confusing time where everything feels off? And by the way, you might be experiencing a time like that right now. You can't articulate it. Everything feels off. Maybe it's because you're re-entering school. Maybe, maybe AU is brand new for you. Maybe you're in a brand new elementary school, a brand new high school. You're facing experiences that you have no category for because they're new. And you just feel like, man, I don't have a routine. I don't have a, I, none of this feels familiar. And I feel like I'm, I'm on the edge of a bunch of change and that's hard. And you just don't really feel like yourself. And we can take some comfort in knowing that this is how the disciples felt as Jesus comes to them with these words. It's the first thing that we see. First thing we see that as a way to assure his disciples, Jesus deals gently with their troubled hearts. He deals gently with them. He shows them care. It's important to remember that the disciples are confused. They're confused at what's going on in the upper room. That's okay. They don't know everything. And in fact, some of the things that they should know that Jesus is, I don't know, like try to hammer into their brain over the last X number of years, they're just still not getting. You know, and it's kind of like us. We get scripture every Sunday by yours truly just hammered into your head. And sure enough, we need to come back again seven days later to be reminded of those things. I do too as I'm preparing these sermons. That's how it goes for us. The disciples are confused at what's going on. Judas betrays Jesus, and their world begins to unravel in one night, right? The band is breaking up, right? The drummer is leaving, as drummers tend to do, you know? Yeah, four of you guys get that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Profound lack of musicians in the house, apparently. Um, what's curious is the way Jesus responds, and he responds in a, in a way he responds in a way of being, right? He deals gently with their troubled hearts. Let your hearts not be troubled, he says in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. Why do I use the word curious when we talk about the way that Jesus deals with them? Well, 
Because if you're first century disciples, you want something from Jesus that he just will not deliver. Right? If you're a first century disciple, you want Jesus to become king. And you want him to establish his rule. This is your most hoped for solution. When the subject of trouble and troubled hearts come into the conversation. In fact, given Peter's response to Jesus that, that Pastor Mark took us through uh, last week, uh, you can almost imagine them thinking like, hey, Jesus, brother, we've seen your power. Uh, we believe. Can, can we use it for a little bit more than just healing the sick? For raising the dead? For forgiving people's sins? As if those are just like, you know, minor things to brush aside. I mean, if Jesus would have shared a Google Doc Right at this moment, with a plan to defeat the Romans, those disciples would have been pumped. They would have been pumped. That's why I use the word curious, because Jesus curiously resists that temptation. Instead, he does something that feels just incredibly counterintuitive to the disciples' way of thinking, and therefore our way of thinking. He speaks to the troubled nature of their souls. And he does it by telling them to believe in God. Like, that's what you got, Jesus? You just, t- you just tell me to believe in God and believe in you? Jesus' answer for troubled hearts are trusting hearts. It, almost, it seems so basic. I feel like I should just pray and dismiss everybody, and it'll be the greatest church service of your life with me coming back, you know. But this is what he does. His answer for troubled hearts are trusting hearts. I wonder how frustrating that was for the disciples. Oh my gosh, this is what you have for us. It's like Jesus is saying, what it means to be my disciple is not being reactive to your circumstances. Not not calling you out here, Peter. Not being passive-aggressive, Peter. It's not being reactive to your circumstances, but it's being receptive to my care for you because this is what will increase your faith. If you're receptive to this level of care that when I tell you, let your hearts be not troubled, that means something. That's a gentle command, but that means something. To believe that, to receive that, to act that out, that means something, right? Peter's answer was, I'll lay down my life. But notice how Jesus counters Peter's passion. He doesn't say, hey, man, you don't have the guts to lay down your life. Well, that's not how he responds. He points out that Peter's heart is going to fail to have the courage to die for him. He didn't say Peter didn't have the physicality to do that. He said, no, Peter, basically it's it's your heart that's going to fail. So that's why you're not even going to lay down your life for me. You're actually going to deny me three times. The problem with Peter's heart was internal, not external. That's what Jesus is driving at. What's interesting is that we only get one opportunity to lay down our physical lives. If that's where we always feel like we want to be going with our fists up and our dukes up, right? So this call from Jesus, it's just radical. It's radically counterintuitive to our tendency to want to fight against, listen to this, fight against the trouble out there rather than dealing with the trouble that lies in here. Which is why we have worried and anxious and troubled hearts, right? In the same way, Jesus wants to prepare your heart so that you can live out your passions 
redemptively rather than reactively. Unbridled passions, they just don't seem to promote the cause of Christ, even though they can feel more productive at times. What Jesus seems to go back to time and time again is the productivity of your heart, which is why he deals gently with it when it's troubled. I think of it like this. When Christians are at their most Christ-like, they function in the world and in their home and in their communities and in their schools and in their workplaces as the most cared-for people in the world. We see this played out in the book of Acts, right? Those early converts, when we see the way that they're described in the book of Acts, and these are not angry Christians. These are not cynical Christians. These are not dismissive and disgruntled Christians. These are not conspiracy theory Christians. These are cared for Christians with cared for hearts who did something really peculiar. They offered the care of Christ to an uncared for world. That's how Christ becomes most visible in a divisive world, right? In a, in a few weeks, we're going to be getting to John 14, 27, where Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And here's the qualifier, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So he's saying, this is different. This is not the way that you think of it. And then he said, let not your hearts be troubled. He repeats what he repeats here. He says, neither let them be afraid. He's saying, look, I acknowledge your troubles. I acknowledge the things in your life that feel off. And I'm saying that there is something deeper that is holding you here than anything you can do as a reactive response to try to change your circumstances. But it's not going to feel intuitive. Because at the end of the day, we want to be like Peter. I'll lay down my life for you, Jesus. Let me just get out there. Let me get aggressive. And Jesus says, no. That's not the way. That's not the way. Jesus deals gently with our troubled hearts because troubled hearts need a gentle heart to reshape, to reassure. The second thing we see is that Jesus shows what troubled hearts have to look forward to. So he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And then he tells us in verses 2 through 4 what troubled hearts have to look forward to. In my Father's house are many rooms. Maybe you've heard this verse. If you've been in church over the years, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So imagine the disciples hearing those words from Jesus in the, just the dark atmosphere of that upper room. I understand your hearts are troubled, but they don't have to be when you consider my heart for you. But then he goes even further by saying, I want you to consider my hands for you too. Right? 
because I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's like Jesus is saying, the world is about to get very bleak, but I want you to remember that the world is not your home. Notice he is, he's, not, he's not passing out booklets with plans on how to start a commune and, and so these dudes can separate themselves from the world. Not doing anything like that. Nor is he you know, telling them to take the world by force and create a militarized Christian society. None of it. None of those two extremes that we see playing out in the church over the years. Right? He's saying as you live and as you work, and by the way, as you suffer in this world... You hold an ever-brightening hope in your heart because you are able to anticipate the world to come. A world that will be available to you because of my death and resurrection. In other words, the life, it's like Jesus is saying, the life I'm about to lay down changes the life you are about to live as ambassadors of my kingdom. And it's an, it's an upside-down kingdom, like Pastor Mark pointed out last weekend. The way up is the way down. Yes, you're going to have to lay down your life, even physically. But most significantly, you're going to have to lay down your life of unbridled passions for this world. And instead, fix your hope on the world to come. It just doesn't feel like that's mostly our tendency and we think about ways that we are looking for to assure our hearts but this is our remember that song that old song we sing occasionally blessed assurance this is what this is this is our blessed assurance this is what our troubled hearts always have to look forward to this is what Jesus is pointing out this is what Jesus is reminding his disciples of because this is our actual destination Christians are not really headed toward retirement in this life. They're really headed towards rejoicing in the next life, right? That's why we need heavenly-minded Christians. It's funny because the phrase, maybe some of you have heard that old phrase, you're so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, assumes that all of us can actually be too heavenly-minded, right? I don't, I've never really met anybody that's like, oh, man, would you just stop going on and on about Jesus? It's stifling. You're bumming me out, you know? Okay, people can do that in a way that might bum you out. I think you get my larger point here. But none of us are too heavenly. None of us are too heavenly-minded. The truth is that we are not heavenly-minded enough. We are actually far too earthly-minded, which, by the way, informs the, the broken ways that we relate to God and our neighbors and our co-workers and our community. We forget. We forget the words of Paul in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From that do we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul does? Do you see what Jesus does? It's like, hey, 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 hey. Like, get your mind back to what is true in terms of what is the eventual destination of your life that you guys are all waiting for. But all this other stuff and all these reactionary responses kind of leave you and pivot you away from. There's a reason why Jesus assures us with a reminder of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's because, listen, if we live as if we don't have anything to look forward to beyond this world, we will do everything we can to make this world our everything. 
it's that frame of mind and it's that way of living that produces the troubled hearts that we carry around. We carry those things around, they're, they're like boulders in our chest, right? They're like boulders. And that makes the church, at the end of the day, kind of an ineffectual institution. See, when, when the church is heavenly minded and it's full of hope, it becomes free to care for and serve her neighbors in the most helpful, hopeful, and by the way, earthy, not earthly, but earthy, helpful, practical of ways. I can be generous with my time when I'm heavenly minded because I have all eternity with Jesus in my future. So what am I sweating out about my time? I can be generous with my treasure and my resources because I've received an inheritance with the saints in Christ Jesus that's just waiting for me. I can be generous with my talents because they're not even mine, but given to me by God to steward for his glory, for the good of, of others. Peter tells us in his letter, 2 Peter 3.13, he said, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Jesus assures our troubled hearts with what we have to look forward to because it's based on a promise. It's bankable, right? It's not like sort of the half promises we give that work out when they're convenient, you know? These are bankable promises that come from Christ. Jesus said in verse 2, he said, hey, if it were not so, would I have told you? In other words, like my word is good. If, if, I, if I wasn't going away to prepare a place for you, if you didn't have the hope of a new heavens and new earth, I would have just spelled out a different narrative. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have said it. Jesus has no ability to lie. And if he did, he wouldn't be Jesus. And I don't know why I'm up here. Promises produce hope. That's why Jesus shows what troubled hearts have to look forward to. And then finally, number three, Jesus redirects troubled hearts back to himself. Back to himself. You see what happens there in verses five and six? With Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know if Thomas was looking for that answer. I think maybe Thomas was saying, like, is there some map? Is there, some de is there like, some roadmap that you all are going to hand us? Like, is there, is there a place here that we can all go? Is, is there some place here on earth that we can find that's going to provide us with something that we're longing for? And Jesus goes, I mean, you're, like, Thomas, look me in the eye. Like, he's doing this. With Thomas, right? Jesus redirects their troubled hearts back to himself. So, I'll tell you a short story. Uh, sabbatical is not all fun and games like you all think it is. Um, so, something happened to me about a month ago. Um, I was all set to, uh, I had some friends that invited me to take like a, uh, a trip to Wyoming for five days and go to this lodge where there's all kinds of, I don't know, you know, fly fishing and horseback riding and 
I said, I would love to go as long as I don't have to do either of those things. And they said, you do not. You can drink coffee in the lodge, Ronnie, and be totally on brand for who you are. And I said, all right, I'm in. Um, so on Friday, before I was set to fly out there on Monday, um, I get just this tiny little toothache that by the end of the day was not so tiny. And it was some of the worst pain that I've ever felt. And um, of course, all, I, I've had tooth issues in the past. They always hit me on Friday when the dentist's office is closed for the weekend. I don't know what the Lord's doing with that. He is the way, the truth, and the life, man. I, so I'm like, I can't do anything. It's like Friday night. I got to make it through the weekend. So I, I wake up on Monday. It's bad. I mean, it's bad, bad. It's bad. Um, so I call, I call our dentist office, and they're like, yeah, we can get you in in a few weeks. You know, it was like one of those things, right? And I said, that's the thing. Like, if you don't get me in, I got to go to the ER. I can't do this. And they said, okay, how about Wednesday? And I said, mm, still three days away. <laughs> but it was my best opportunity. And then I go through Monday, and it just gets worse and worse to where I can't sleep, I can't think. You guys have all, some of you have experienced this. So I wake up on Tuesday, I start making calls to literally every dentist office within like, I don't know, like a 20-hour radius. And I find one pretty nearby that's like, we can get you in this afternoon. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. So uh, I get there and uh, sit down, and I'm just trying to play it cool, and I can't even play it cool. It hurts so bad. I'm sitting in the chair, and they give me these goggles now where you put on these goggles. And um, again, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, what's, what's about to happen where I need goggles now? I didn't need them 10 years ago. Like, how, how advanced is the equipment now? And um, so the, the woman comes, the, the doc, the dentist, and she comes in. She goes, she goes, hey, Ronnie, how you doing? And I'm just like, I'm just shaking. I can't even talk. It hurts to talk. I'm just shaking my head. She goes, all right. So they do the x-rays. They figure out the problem with the tooth. She said, we can do the work on it right now. And I'm just like, yeah, you know. And, and uh, so she does this thing where she, you know, she, gets, she gets the needle. She gives me a shot. And I'm just sitting there. I, nothing can hurt worse than the pain I'm feeling. So she gives me the shot. And within 10 seconds, all of the pain evaporates. And I literally just start crying. And I can't stop crying because of the relief. And my goggles are all fogging up. And the woman comes in, she goes, hey, are you doing okay? I said, I am. I'm doing so good. I'm doing so great. Man. That was a long story. Um, to make this very basic point, all right? You know, the hard thing for me and the thing that was killing me when my tooth was killing me was like, I can't get an appointment, right? The thing was, though, is I really didn't need an appointment. I actually needed a dentist. The appointment is what gave me access to the dentist. Here's where I'm going with this, all right? For some of us, Christianity plays out like a series of appointments in our lives that we're just keeping, right? I go to church. I, I maintain my identity and status as a Christian, whatever, that, whatever I decide for that to look like. I, I engage in some acts of maybe kindness or char charitable services. I, I, I do some nice things. Um, I have a heart that's committed to the good of my community. I, I care deeply about the state of morality in, in my neighborhood, in my community, in our nation. Um, 
These are distinctives. And those distinctives give evidence to the way that Christianity is supposed to be lived out. Everything I just said, right? Those good things. But none of those things are the way to Jesus. None of them. Last week, Pastor Mark said, I love this line. He said, what does it take to follow Jesus? Jesus, right? To state the obvious. Well, let me take a page from that and add this. Jesus is the only way to Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God is what Jesus is pointing out here to Thomas. And it's so easy to read Thomas's reply to Jesus and think, where have you been, man? Like, take an interest, you know, like, how, how could you be so basic here? Don't you understand what Jesus is trying to say? It's so easy to come down on people like Thomas and Peter when they make these comments, and you just go, well, duh, you know. We have, we have sort of that feeling about them when we read these things, but our lives give evidence that we are constantly asking the same question all the time. We just do it in different ways. We just do it in 21st century ways. Where are you, Lord? Which way do I go? We ask that question all the time with the course, the direction, the quality, the shape of our lives. And Jesus speaks to those stirrings every time by saying, well, I'm the way. I'm the direction. I'm the destination. You just come to me. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, you'll get a blueprint when you're ready, but you already have the architect right here. What do you want? We always want the directions, but Jesus says, what you need is a destination, and that destination is me. Now, whenever I look up an address, Melissa will affirm this. Whenever I look up an address on Google Maps, no matter what happens, I end up going the wrong way, right? And it has to redirect me. It's not my fault. The arrow's always going that way. I follow it, and then a minute later, it reverses. If I go the wrong direction every time I begin driving with Google Maps, how much more when it comes to the Christian life? Oh my gosh. Jesus is saying, look to me for direction. Look to me for truth. Look to me for life because this is exactly what you want. C.S. Lewis made this comment. He said, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, is what he says. And that's true, isn't it? What Jesus was doing was getting down to the heart of the kind of assurance that these disciples need. And that's what he's doing for you. And that's what he's doing for me. These were reassurances that the disciples were not expecting, given this moment where everything felt off. And probably different than what we expect when we're facing moments of crisis. When we face a crisis of any kind, however large or small, we want someone to fix it in a way that feels concrete and tangible. Remember, Jesus' followers, they were fixated on Jesus fixing the political regime that they were being held under. They wanted Israel to be under the reign of a Jewish king again, which is one of the reasons why you see Peter always coming off so valiant. I will die for you, Jesus. We can take our country back by force. 
the disciples were still holding out for Jesus to get elected king. But the solution that Jesus offered didn't require force. It required faith. There seems to be some parallels here. If we apply this to the church, our church, the church in America, in some ways the church just feels incredibly troubled right now. Very divided, very polarized, you know. In response to this, the church can seek out solutions that become intermingled with things like politics and our elected leaders. The church embraces the unbridled passion of Peter to ease, to attempt to ease the troubled nature of her heart. And yet Jesus resists this tendency and this tactic over and over and over again, which is curious considering that he could have made incredibly tactical decisions that would have been perfectly effective and in, in no chance of failure attached to them. Why did he resist that? Why did he resist that? Well, here's a more interesting question for us. Why do we resist his resistance to that? And then expect that our solutions are going to ease our troubled hearts. What we see is that in his resistance to tactical, sometimes political solutions, Jesus offers true assurance for troubled hearts. He shows us that he's very interested in who and what we give our hope to. Man, we just shouldn't miss that this morning. Especially as you consider your own troubles today. As you consider the uncertain times that you might be facing. As you consider another election year looming on the horizon. Man, you will have trouble in this world, Jesus tells us in John 16. You're going to have trouble with your kids. Kids, you're going to have trouble with your parents. You're going to have trouble with your friends, your coworkers. You're going to have trouble with your health. You're going to have trouble with your job. The list goes on. That doesn't even count the trouble that you can't explain. It's inexplicable. It comes in the form of anxiety and unsettledness and stress in your life. Jesus doesn't condemn you in your trouble. He cares for you. He offers you the same hope. He's calling you out of a reactive heart and into a receptive one. So we end by just saying this, bring your troubled heart to him. Believe in the one who never said one idle word and whose promises always play out exactly how he determines, not always how we determine. Embrace the hope of a new heaven and a new earth that he is preparing to spend eternity with you in. Be aware of all the subtle and deceitful and counterfeit ways and counterfeit truths and counterfeit life that may be troubling your heart and mind. Redirect your gaze toward Jesus who laid down his life so that he could be the way for you to have life more abundantly. That's what we celebrate when we do communion. Do you know that? We, we are celebrating this assurance that we have because of Christ's death 
and resurrection. He said, do this, what? In remembrance of me. Do this so that you will be reminded and assured that your salvation is squared up with me the day that you repent of your sins and believe the gospel. So maybe you do not have that assurance. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're unsure where your, your place is, your relationship is, your standing is before Jesus Christ. So it would be interesting then, if that's you, that you would be in a place where you get to hear what's called the good news of the gospel. And you get an opportunity to come before the Lord. Say, Lord, I want that assurance. Not because I'm always going to feel it, but because you said that those that come and repent of their sins, you will forgive their sins. And you will make them righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Imagine coming to a place on a morning like this, being so unsure of where you stand with God and then walking out assured. How would that change your fall? How would that change 2024 for you? So because of that, if you find yourself in that place, we would just ask that you don't take communion. And that's not a shameful thing. This is a moment for you as I begin to pray to take stock of your life and to pause and to pull back and to consider what the Lord might be speaking to you through his spirit this morning. It's not about just getting up, getting in line, getting that bread and getting that cup. That is a vain exercise for those of you who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean anything. For those of us who do, we celebrate what the Lord has done for us in humility and in gratefulness, remembering that we're obeying what the Lord commanded of us. He commanded us to do something that was going to provide for us ongoing nourishment of our soul and reassurance of our heart. That's why we do what we do on the second, fourth Sunday of the month. We take communion together. So I'm going to pray right now if you bow your heads. We're going to ask that the Lord would do a work. Lord, we do pray for this assurance that so many of us lack in so many different ways. We pray that you would encourage our hearts with these words that you spoke to your disciples on a very dark and off night for them, a night that was going to change everything in their lives. So, Lord, we recognize our place in that. Lord, I pray for those who don't have assurance of their salvation Lord, for those who are unsure of their standing with you, Lord, that you would draw them to you. You would draw them to your love. Lord, you would draw them to repentance, that they would recognize that they don't have the stuff that it takes to find peace and salvation with you. So, Lord, would you, would you speak to some hearts right now? Would you just draw them to you? Would you open their their lips and their minds to be able to pray a simple prayer to offer their lives to you so that from this day forward they might have assurance that you are with them and that they have salvation and that salvation is secure in you. Lord, would you do this work by your spirit? I can't do this work. Uh, nobody in this church can do that work. We can just point to the one who can. So Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would do this work 
And for those of us receiving communion, that you would encourage and nourish our hearts once again, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.